Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. Sui generis, one of a kind. That's my buddy, James Carville. In the world of politics, he is a singular figure, a brilliant, brilliant strategist, passionate, funny, hilarious, really, and uh, incredibly incisive. He engineered the election of Bill Clinton as president and was involved in many, many other battles over the years, uh, electing Democrats across the country. And he's still a hugely important voice in uh, democratic politics. I sat down with him this week at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago to talk about his life and career and this 2020 race that's just unfolding. James Carville, a, my, my old Friend, it's great to see you uh, here at the Institute of Politics. Um, you know, uh, I thought I knew a lot about you, but I studied up for this conversation, and I learned that uh, when your great-great-grandfather came here, he didn't come to Louisiana, he came to Wisconsin. Right. So you that- could, you're the raging Cajun, you could have been the barking badger. Well, let me, let's, let's go back. It was actually my great-grandfather, and the story is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I did not know it. So I was asked about my family when I was a kid about who he was. I said, well, it was from Wisconsin. He had asthma and he came to Louisiana. And I always thought that didn't make any goddamn sense. <laughs> and so, and I noticed that, like, my grandfather's name was Arthur, and we had Uncle Garfield and yeah. Uncle John Madison, and my daddy's name was Chester. And I was As reading, is yours. Yeah, and I was reading about how union people would name their children after presidents. Or, you know, African-Americans back then would name their children Jefferson or Washington. That was not uncommon. That was a way that you—so I said, but this doesn't make sense. Why do we have all of these names in our family? And I come to find out that, first of all, he it was my great-grandfather, not great-great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He immigrated from Ireland— uh, I think went through Toronto, ended up in Wisconsin, served in the Union yeah, Army. Immigrated during the Great Famine? You know, I always thought it was, and it was contemporaneous, but we were from County Monaghan, and that wasn't part that was affected. That was right on the Irish border with Northern uh-huh. Ireland. And I asked my relatives there, and this is probably just a case of too many kids and too few cows. Uh-huh. <laughs> <All right? laughs> so anyway, after the war, he moves to Louisiana, becomes a Republican member of the Louisiana legislature, was actually Governor Pinchback, the Reconstruction African-American governor of Louisiana's kind of floor leader. And uh, he married, history is complicated, so just my family history is complicated too, he married my great-grandmother Octavia Duhon, who was part of a failed Belgian colony in Guatemala somewhere. (laughs) 
And, of course, she didn't quite share his views. And so what people did after what whites did after the war, because the 13th Amendment prohibited involuntary servitude, if you had a plantation, you had a plantation store. So you would pay your laborers in scrip. And I actually have the coins no kidding. That, that are still there, which, you know, I mean, it's a horrific part of, you know, it's horrific, but that was the way the world yeah. operated. And it just goes to show you, yeah, my great-grandfather, we don't think he saw action, but he was an officer and he went to, I don't know how somebody funded him, he went to like a boarding school in Indiana. And uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, families have interesting stories, but that, that's yeah. the story of my great-grandfather who was a Republican member of the Louisiana legislature. And you grew up in Carville, right. Louisiana, uh, presumably named for... Okay, another interesting story. So <laughs> my great- I'm just going to keep oh, no, putting no. the quarters in, so brother. So my great-grandfather's wife, who ran the plantation, also became the postmistress. Right? After that time, my grandfather became the postmaster. And what Carville was called Island. Well, there are a lot of islands in Louisiana. There's actually an island in Louisiana. There's a Sicily Island and a Pecan Island. So the post office decided that they wanted to change the designation of the post office. Larry Speaks, Reagan's old yeah. guy, was represented, yeah. uh, looked us all up for me. And on June the 9th, 1909, the post office changed the designation to Carville because some bureaucrats saw that there was a Carville that was postmaster, that was currently postmaster. In fact, my dad became the postmaster after my grandfather. And so we're just a history of kind of bureaucrats, you know, class C postmasters. But, uh, <laughs> and that's it, how it got its name. But I, did, I, I let all the girls think it was because we had big plantation and a lot of money and everything, which wasn't Did that true. work for you? I yeah, don't know. Sometimes I tried hard anyway. <laughs> so uh, this is a town that's about 15 miles from Baton Rouge? Yeah, a little bit more than that. I'd mm-hmm. say by, you know, it's right 20 miles south, I'd say by 20 15, 20 miles south of Tiger Stadium, the south end of the place. It is a very famous place because it's where the foremost center for the treatment of Hansen's disease, or what you would know as his leprosy, exists. And for 100 years, it was the center, the number one place in the world if you contracted leprosy. Really? To, you would go to Carville? Carville yes, sir. It is, it, it, it is drop-dead gorgeous place to this day. I mean, it, it, it really kept it up. There, there's a great book in in the... Uh, uh, not the shadow of Alcast, Neil guy I can think of his name, but it, it, it making a movie of it, it, it became a federal prison, Neil White. It became a federal prison after it closed in 94 because there's no reason to colonize people with right. leprosy. It just really, no, it was, that was an antiquated thing. And it became a federal prison for a while. And a guy who wrote, had a literary journal in Oxford, Mississippi, was kiting checks to make payroll and got caught. So he got sentenced, you know, ended up spending nine months there in the sanctuary of outcast. And so he was there at the time that the old patients were still there. So mm-hmm. he wrote a book about it, and they're going to make a movie of it. It's a really? very good book. You uh, you mentioned your, your your dad was the postmaster, and he had the, a general store as right. well. Right on side of each other. Yeah. Same book, through a door. I um, am... Uh, Reminded of the fact that you fam- you are probably the foremost world's expert on uh, and Andy of Mayberry episodes. <laughs> I love that. How, how much was Mayberry like uh, Carville? Not not a lot. I mean, one thing that Mayberry did, which you couldn't do if you lived in Carville, it just acted like black people didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was just some kind of fat. Carville was uh, probably ninety percent African American. 
people, <laughs> patients, and 5% Caucasian. So you either got along or you didn't have a very good life. <laughs> But but when you uh, when you first were coming up, it was it was a segregate. It's the whites and blacks were it, when facilities I first came were up, segregated. There was a movie theater, and the whites sat in the balcony. Really? Because there were so few whites. Uh huh. All right. Yeah, but but we didn't have. Uh, what it about was a little, the bit, a little bit different experience because we didn't have any any public places to integrate, and the hospital because it was a federal facility was obviously integrated way before anything else. And they also had non-discriminatory hiring before anybody else. So if you were an African-American in 1958 in Carville and you had a job at the hospital, you're pretty good shape. I mean, you had a little retirement. You wore like a khaki uniform to work every day. You, you had some health care and prestige. So it, it was a, to that extent, it was a very, it was a very good local produce of jobs and that the jobs were mm -hmm. they paid and they people there were people of respect so it, it, it was very helpful it was a, it was the economic engine that obviously drove the whole place so all of what was coursing through the south when you were growing up did not touch your town not that much because there wasn't anything there wasn't a lunch counter right there wasn't a movie theater right it, it, it so i mean we were certainly aware of everything and then, of course, it, you know, was the whole topic of conversation. But it really didn't in daily life in the, in a place where I grew up. There just wasn't that conflict because there was nothing to conflict over. And how did that shape your views on race? You know, David, I, I literally, when I was like fourteen or fifteen, I I, I can't. I don't know. What, I, I I just had this epiphany that. This thing is not, this is really what we're doing to, to black people. It's just not right. No, it just became very sympathetic to it. And I think I got tired of the singular conversation. I, I told Gary Wills, who did a piece of me a long time ago, you just, they wouldn't talk about anything else. Can we just talk about the football team? Can we talk about anything other than, you know what? And I, I, I think it was just, I was just rebelling. I, I think, I hope, I would like to think in part against that it was discrimination and I, I didn't like it, but it was also interfering with other things in my life because there was just such an obsession with race on everybody's part. How'd your folks uh, uh, deal? You had you were one of eight, right? Uh, you know, my parents were. We were. This sounds so like. Oh, you're really gonna say this is crazy? We were never allowed to use the N word, mm -hmm. or we would, we couldn't call Italian people. To, that's ugly. Don't talk about mm -hmm. people like that. Uh, to that extent, they were we were not raised with any of that. But I mean, they weren't also activists or anything. They mm -hmm. kind of accepted it. Uh, Just decent, my grandmother, was, people. my grandmother was awful. <laughs> oh man! And I'll never forget. And in, in in that era. People didn't talk back to their parents, and she was just there going to, you know, this, the end, that, 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 this, every other word. And Daddy said, Mama, you know, I wish you wouldn't talk like that in front of the kids. And she says, well, it's my house. I'll say what I want. And he said, well, they're my kids, so we're just going to leave. And I was just, like, so startled huh. that he would, like, do anything. I, I, I can't tell you what an act of familiar yeah. courage that was to do that. It, it, again, it doesn't sound like much, but given the, the element, the time— uh, and you know, he and my mother—they they were actually kind of both Democrats. Miss Nippy. Miss Nippy. Yeah, she How'd was named she after had... Trump. She was named after what? 
she was named after a hobo. Uh-huh. She had a, during the Depression, you know, had a head in the rural South, particularly these hobos would ride the rails. And there was one behind a house, and she would take food from a house, and, and the hobo's name was Nip, was Nip. And so people started calling her <laughs> Nippy. So my mother's actually named after a tramp or a hobo from the Depression era when she and, was a little And everybody, girl. everybody in town called her Miss Nippy? Everybody. There's not, there's no, there's not five people in Baton Rouge area that know her name is, first name is Lucille. <laughs> you, um, you went to LSU. Um, had, were you the first in your family to go or? No, I was the oldest in my immediate family, but no, my, my uncles and my dad mm-hmm. uh, all went. I think we figured up that I have like 22 nieces and nephews that graduated, have, you know, bunch of brothers and sisters so no we had uh uh-huh. uh you know and i had a cousin that he would tell us and he was an mba at harvard and stuff but but you know we were all lsu we didn't really thought about going anywhere else i mean yeah. it didn't cost anything back then and, and you got one like there that. now right i do i have my oldest uh is my youngest I, I, the clue is that i'm youngest. looking at you you got an lsu dad, dad hat. cap on yeah. so she's i took a, that as a cue she's a junior intrepid moderator you know I, and i didn't have she she i took her on tour and we were going to go see university of georgia and wake forest and tcu and smu and that kind of thing and she just said dad i think i want to go to lsu and i was like stunned and saved me a bucket load of money and she's having a good time so i'm, I'm happy about it when you were a kid uh before we get to lsu i should right. ask you politics was that part of what you guys yeah, discussed i loved it, I, loved it. Yes. I mean that's sort of a yeah. civic sport in louisiana right. yeah. and i from the get-go i mean i uh my grandfather was on the board of a bank in baton rouge you know when i was a young teenager i'd have to run back and forth to the state capital because they had the, the account for like the land office. They wanted to get the money that day so they could start drawing interest. And I'd go down there and I'd watch the legislature for an hour. And, you know, it was big theater then. It was, yeah. like, you know. Well, you know, the Longs cast such a big yeah. shadow uh, yeah. there. You you were after, obviously, Huey Long. But but we were talking before we started rolling about Earl Long, My favorite. who uh, was... Uh, uh, governor three different times, right. uh, and a really colorful character. And I started telling you a story foolishly because right. obviously you know Earl Long stories far better than I do. Uh, but so this is the story. Yeah. So Earl and an aide are campaigning in rural South Louisiana, and the aide says, "Look, there's old man Swallow back there. There's 50 people that live there, and if he endorses you, you you're going to get 50 votes." So he said, good, go down there. So they go down this dirt road at the end of the road. The guy's sitting on his front porch. And he goes, and he said, Mr. Swallow, Burl Long. He said, I know you are. He says, I, I'm, I'm running again for governor, and I'd like to have you supporting people. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll vote for you. I'll get all these people to vote for you. The only thing that we need is we've got to get this road gravel because it rains a lot. It gets washed out. We had a guy a week ago had a heart attack, and we couldn't get him out. He died. People just can't do it. He says, you got a deal. So the election comes in, it's like, of course, it's all the demo, it's 50, zero, 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 zero. And about three months after the election, a guy shows up in Baton Rouge, and he said, hey, Mr. Swallow's out there to see you. He says, who in the hell is that? He said, that's the guy that you told me. (laughs) You got his people to vote for you, that you, you you know, improved the road. And uh, he said, well, what happened? He said, well, you got all 50 votes. 
And he said, well, I don't want to see him. He said, well, what do I tell him? He said, tell him I lied. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell him old Earl lied to you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell, me what, tell me about Long as a, uh, as a political figure. You, you, yeah. said you, you said before we started that you thought he, he was right. one of the three most oh, uh, right. three greatest politicians you've ever seen. The, the Longs traditionally were not very into race. So Huey, he was just into power. I mean, I, I don't think he had, like, a burning desire to help black people, but that was instrumental to his goal. And so there's this famous story that during the Depression, three or four black preachers from New Orleans went to see the governor, and they said, Governor, look, if, if we could get two or three state jobs somewhere that could support, you know, ten different people, I mean, we're just really up against the wall. So he thought, and he says, you know, I can get you five jobs, but you may not like how I do it. They said, it don't matter, Governor, do anything you got to do. So Huey announces that he's having an inspection to a charity hospital in New Orleans. And, you know, they had two radio stations and a local paper. Mm -hmm. So he walks out and he says, I have just witnessed the single most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. In that hospital, we actually have white women changing bedpans of black men. That will cease and desist immediately. And we'll only have black people changing bedpans of black people. And everybody clapped, and he got the five jobs. Right? Not the most admirable way to do it, but 1932 right. person had to do, you know, did it. So Earl really never was, he never was into him. He didn't like the segregationists and everything. It, but he, he was always fighting back against them. And... Uh, he was a very courageous guy, and he had a way of like sticking a knife in the in the establishment or whatever that the whatever you are the bourbons or the, the people that had had power in a long time. In fact, my family was Andy Long, but not me. <laughs> no. So you, he was he was uh, on the from the outside. You know, there was a sense that he was a little bit off. You know, he probably like anybody else. He drank too much. He didn't take care of himself. He gambled, but he's a man of good heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, but yes, he, but and he was smart, and he he is one of the best communicators that I've ever seen in American politics. And he did it in a way that it's hard to think that that someone with that much political skill. So you know, if you think of Louisiana in the fifties, it was the Catholic South and the Protestant North. And that was the kind of conflict in the state, which made it a little different than other states. So Hale Boggs was running. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when Hale Boggs was a student running at Loyola. Yeah, it was pretty huge. And mm -hmm. Lindy Boggs and right. one of the titans of— Hale Boggs uh, became the majority leader the majority of the majority leader, right. And so the, when he was a student at Loyola during the Depression, he was at some campus group that they, somebody laid a claim was like a communist front, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. red scare stuff. So Earl is our campaign. He said, you know, they say that Hale Boggs is a communist. I'm going to tell you right now, that is impossible. That I, 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 This is terrible that people bring this. I know for a fact it's impossible for Hale Boggs to be a communist because he's too good a Catholic to be a communist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he knew how to get, you know, he was an expert of setting you up with uh -huh. praise and then coming in for the kill <laughs> shot. I, I just wish I could see that more and more. Well, you uh, you were saying also earlier that um, 
the ability to tell stories is is an essential ingredient in in politics. Um, why? You know, David. Since I agree. The first, I, I agree. Since the first time, the first human being told somebody about their and their parents, every every story that ever exists has the same arc. It cannot have any other arc. It's called setup, conflict, resolution. So you would say that in every play, every movie, every book always has the same narrative. And it is the way that people receive information. It's the only way they receive information. And so many politicians, we don't get information through 10-point plans. We get information, you know, even Trump had a story that America used to be a great country. We, we, we sold ourselves out to the international I don't know, mm-hmm. moneyed people and mm-hmm. the immigrants and the stupid politicians, and we can be great again if we. And he had a, he had a, had a, a narrative, he had an arc. And everybody understood it. And the everybody story. understood it. Let me ask you a question about that since you went there, since you've gone there, I was going to ask you about it later. You're obviously very, very close to the Clintons. Uh, it was my sense that she didn't have a narrative arc didn't. in that campaign, that she did have a hundred. Policies, right? All trees, no forest, no arc, no story. Why? I think they bought. She did, not him. Be really fair here. Into the kind of coalition, and that she was convinced that it would be sufficient if they were to make Trump unacceptable to suburban women, like you know Montgomery, Delaware, you know suburban uh, Detroit. Uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing that, that that was the way that was the path to victory and it didn't you know it, by distributional fluke I mean Trump did win I, I you know I know the Russians and a Comey there's a thousand things that went wrong but I think it's a, a fair thing to say that they could have been more relevant so what happens is the party learns its lesson so they said you know we're going to go out and recruit people we're going to talk about stuff that matters to people and we get these wonderful class of freshmen coming in. In Congress. In Congress. And what we do is we recruit CIA agents, FBI people, business people, women, minority, I mean the most diverse, Native Americans, you name it. It was all in this class. And six hours after the election, we off on every rabbit track that they can put us on. We're talking about reparations. We're talking about changing the rules of the Senate. Are we talking about the Electoral College? Are we talking about felons in jail voting it, it, it's like do you learn anything people do you you do something it works and the next thing you do is something that has no chance of working we're it, gonna park the thought because i want to get to the we, we got we got some politics to talk about it uh, yeah, here okay. uh, right now but i don't want to lose uh the thread of your story you uh, you were so you had this fascination with uh uh you had this fascination with politics. How did how did you uh, how did you get into it? I mean, not not organized politics, but you started you started organizing yourself as a young guy, even when you were in college. Here's a guy, Price LeBlanc, who was like a real character. He ran for the Louisiana legislature, and I, you know, put up signs for him and that kind of stuff, and he lost. But it was I just was just fascinated by it, and I was started. You know, young Democrats at LSU, like we started, three of us went up to Southern and 
helped him start the first Young Democratic chapter. But people not familiar, Southern University at one time was the largest black university in the world. Now, I'm sure there were some in Africa that are now bigger, but I think it's still the largest in the United States. And that was considered radical in 1964. Like, God, what did you, you, you get in? How did you get out? Did, did, did you get in a fight? No, no, just kind of went up there until you got met with some students and, you know, whatever you did to get something sort of activated. So I was interested, you know, even at that point. 64 uh, was uh, the year that LBJ passed the Civil Rights Act, probably a historical historically black college was the best place to be in the South to try and organize. Yeah. Because everywhere else might have been a little dicey. You know? Right. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it was obviously it was receptive, but it, ne- it just never had been done before. Yeah, no, right. You know? Um, you, uh, you joined the Marine Corps. You went to law school at LSU as well, but in between uh, well, you joined the Marine Corps. Was, uh, yeah, what happened was is I, uh, I flunked out. And I was going to be drafted. And I saw this article that said the Marine Corps is now accepting two-year enlistments. And it's like, you know, you're going to jail, so why not start (laughs) as soon as you can? And so I went down there, and that was June the 6th, 1966. And, uh, you know, 6666, I'm sure to sign it. And so some fundamentals, <laughs> like having a curse on my house. And I, it was fortunate because I was in for two years and it was, a, I, I didn't get, I didn't get shot. <laughs> did you, you didn't get shipped I, I to did, Vietnam? I did or? not. I, I was going to get shipped on February 15th, 1968. If you remember, that was Tet. Yeah. And, and I, was, I, had, I had a machine gun MOS. I, I wouldn't be here. And they said, anybody who has a discharge date prior to June the 15th, fall out. And mine was June 6th. And so the first sergeant comes up and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you an extra stripe. I'll make you a corporal. I'll give you $1,300 if you sign up for two more years. I said, <coughs> Gunny, top, I ain't signing shit. <laughs> and he, he looked around and he said, I don't blame you, you lucky son of a bitch. Now get the hell out of here. <laughs> did, what, what, did you, what did those two years uh, do for you? You know, I, it gave me the kind of pride of being part of a, I, I think, of a, a fundamentally good organization. I needed some, I, I needed the experience of being part of something, of making my bed every morning, of having to show up and having no choice whether or not to be late. I mean, it, it just gave me to, I needed two years, mm-hmm. all right, and I, I, and unfortunately, that's not available to people now, and the military is not a place for wayward youths to go and find their place. And but at that time, I was just fortunate enough that it all worked out for me. And you came back, and did you finish college, and, and then the, went to right, law school? Right, and I taught school in St. James Parish during because that was when you first had integration. I was like a good. Southern liberal. I wanted to be part of the the grand experiment, and then after that, I went to law school in 1970. Why'd you go to law school? It was just always assumed that that boy can talk. He needs to be a lawyer. That's <laughs> I never wanted to be a lawyer, but it was a good like experience, and it didn't cost anything. It was law school was like 110 dollars. It's like, well, why not? Now, you know, these kids go to law school and they're taking on. Two hundred thousand dollars in debt, and if you know, I wouldn't tell anybody 
that you go to University of Chicago Law School, I couldn't get in anyway, but I couldn't get into LSU Law School, to tell you the truth, I, that no one would pay that kind of tuition for a three-year experience to just, like, think of things differently anymore. It, it, the world doesn't work like that. But you did practice law. I did, and was not very good at it. <laughs> I, uh, I sat at my desk one day and said, you know, if I had to hire a lawyer, I wouldn't hire me. <laughs> I'm getting the hell out of here. I don't, no, no one tried to encourage me to stay. <laughs> no one called in and said, you know, James, you didn't need to rethink this decision. But you were you were you were involved in campaigns totally. while you were at that law firm. All the time. And we were a very the head there who hired me was executive counsel at one time to Governor Edmund Edwards. Uh huh. So another colorful character. Another really colorful character. So yes, and I got there, I got my teeth cut, and when I left, that's when I started started out and kind of political consultant and slapping around the country. Ray Struther, uh, Raymond Struther, yes. a, 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 one of the early giants right. in uh, media, political Taught media me consultant. Lot. Taught me a lot. And From Louisiana. Yeah, I, I worked for Raymond. He had a, he had a partner named Gus Wilde, who didn't, Raymond became more nasty famous, but those guys taught me a lot. And I mean, they understood, Raymond really understood the value of, of narrative and really understood the value of messaging. Yeah. I mean, he was a uh, he was in Raymond from uh, Port Arthur. He's in like Golden Triangle, and he went to high school with, with Janis Joplin. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting guy. He's living in Montana now, uh, but yeah, Raymond was a was a real, real, real influence in my life. And what were you doing for him? <laughs> I was like going out on shoots and you know go to meetings and that kind of stuff. Uh, it was you know general flucky. <laughs> you know, I mean, they'd let me speak up every now and then, but uh, that was not very good at putting TV spots together. <laughs> but you made the move from television to managing. Right. Why? Maybe because you weren't good at putting yeah, TV I wasn't spots together. Yeah, I, I, I started in, in Virginia in 1982. I, I was working for the mayor of Baton Rouge in Peter Hart. And I worked for a guy, yeah. yeah, and Mark Shields. I started with a guy, unsuccessful candidate for governor of Louisiana in 1979, a man by the name of Bubba Henry. And so I called him and I said, I'm working in uh, the situation I was in was not tenable in the mayor's office in Baton Rouge. And I said, Look, I'm 40 years old. Uh, I got to do something. And uh, I wasn't 40, I was 36. And so Peter said, You know, I, th I think you have a skill at politics. I, I, I got an idea. I'm going to call. Bob Thomas, a guy who's a, like a big lobbyist in Virginia, and Dick Davis was running for the Senate. And so they hired me as a campaign manager in Virginia in 82, and we lost the close race, but we lost. And then in 1984, uh, Lloyd Doggett was running Phil Graham for the Senate in Texas, and that result was predictable. Yeah, and you I was, know, I will say this, though. I, I, I was That was my first year out of journalism, in politics. I was running Paul Simon's race for the Senate up here. And uh, I know in my campaign, you know, it was David Wilhelm and Rahm Emanuel and all these guys who went, and, and some gals who went on to uh, prominence in politics. Your campaign was another treasure trove of brilliant oh, yeah. young people, including... Paul, Paul you know, Gallup, Mark McKinnon. Yeah. You know, a lot of Wasn't those guys. Kiki, yeah, Kiki, Kiki Moore? Yeah, Kiki, Kiki Moore then, sure. yes, yeah. And then we, the 88, the 88 Lautenberg campaign, Larry Grislano, yes. John Anzalone, yes. Paul Begala, Karen yeah. Olick. Yeah. I mean, it, that was, 
that was one of the most talented statewide campaigns ever. That was when I was, you know, in 1988, I, I used to, like all campaign managers, I'd, I'd get in the office early. And Lily sat at my desk and said, because remember, I had that experience of saying in 1978, if I had to hire a lawyer, I wouldn't hire me, so I wouldn't ask anybody else to. And it's the best feeling of my life. I said, you know what? If I had to hire a campaign manager, God damn it, I would hire me. <laughs> and I went, yes! But, you know, that one shining moment, like you have confidence that you can do what you're doing. And and that's a great gift in life to just have that for any any period of time in your life. It's also It's also a gift to have around you this family of, of, oh, of, of, of highly charged young oh, people. Oh, are, God. Yeah. And, you know, it's in a relationship. I mean, it's this whole thing about the whole 92 Clinton people all talk to each other four or five yeah. times a week. And, uh, yeah. you know, we're all, like, complaining about our prostates and hair loss and, <laughs> you know, you name it. But it, the, the great thing about it— I think, and, James, you long ago stopped complaining about hair loss. <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> no, but—, but, but uh, the sense of mission, shared mission, oh, and man. you know, I miss it. Yeah, uh, you know, as I'm, you know, just that you walk in and it just has a certain. I saw Grizzly. I was in San Francisco. Larry Grizzlano, yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm just taking. Yeah, it's just you just can't. It's, it's, it's stunning, and you see them all have kids, and you know, get grandchildren now. <laughs> you name it. I uh, the first time I met you, I think, was at a birthday party for Bob Shrum, and you had just managed. Uh, Bob Casey's eighty-six campaign, gubernatorial campaign, the father of the current senator. Right. He had lost three times. Right. Three times lost from Holy Cross. <laughs> exactly, and you, in a sense, you were like looking for a winner too. I mean, right. you guys both were. This was he redemptive for both of you guys. He called me in February, and David Doak and Bob Trump. And I, I went up there. We were like the two Pretty ugliest, the ugliest guy and the ugliest girl. And the palm was tomorrow. We couldn't go. I couldn't get anybody to hire me, and he couldn't get anybody to work for him. <laughs> I mean, we were both flat out losers in 1986. Yeah. And uh, God, I loved the old man. He was a he was a different kind of guy. I'll say that. Yeah. Really different. And the, the son has done a really good job. Too. I mean, they're some of the most honest people I've ever dealt with in my life. You know. Um, in uh, 2008, Bob Casey Jr., I guess he's the third, is he? I don't know. But Bob Casey's son, Bob Casey, the senator, know. called him. Called uh, ca- uh, Someone called me and said he'd like to speak to Senator Obama. This was on Easter Sunday. And uh, I hooked up the call, and he told Obama, right, this is right entering the Pennsylvania primary, he said, I want to endorse you. And uh, Obama said, that's great. Fantastic! Great to have you. And then a few days later, the Reverend Wright story broke, right. uh, and Obama called Casey and said, "Bob, I really appreciate your offer, but I want to give you a chance to get out of it. If you feel like this story is too hard for you, I don't want to. I don't want to endanger right. you." And Casey said, "I gave you my word. I I still feel the same way I did." I'll keep my word. And he spent six days on a bus in Pennsylvania. A primary he knew we were probably going to lose. You know who introduced him? His mother client, Harris Wofford. Yes. Introduced well, those, in that Philadelphia speech. I, I want to um, I want to talk about that because 
yeah, you had this this series of winners. Uh, you had Casey, and you had Lautenberg, and uh, but. Um, uh, you had Wallace with Wilkinson, Wilkinson in, in Kentucky. In Kentucky I was the most fun governor. I've had in my life, and then Zell Miller, and then yeah, Harris. Georgia. Yeah, yeah you were yeah, on a, a, you were on a roll, man. Yeah, I had a yeah. I had but ninety one, uh, you did this special election in Pennsylvania for Harris Wofford against Dick Thornburg, who was a former. It was a special for uh, was I guess John Heinz's seat, yes, right? Was. Senator Heinz was killed in a, tragically in a air crash in the fog out in suburban Philadelphia. So, so Thornburg uh, was a former governor of Pennsylvania, right. and, and he was like a, he had like a a hundred and ten point lead when this race right. started, and nobody gave Wofford a chance. Right, uh, and you had this famous conversation with Wofford talking about health care. And he told you about a conversation he had with a doctor. I, I, this right. is interesting so, to me because so this, is, me, yeah, this is this is you go to storytelling. This is this is storytelling supreme. So we, Mike Donlan, who is a dear friend of mine, who's now running now, the now Biden running, campaign. Biden campaign was our poster. And you're right. We, the first of all, we were down sixty-two <laughs> to twenty-one or something like yeah. that. But we did. But it was. You know, I've commonly done now. We did a paragraph describing Thornburg and a paragraph describing Wofford. Yes. With the healthcare thing in Chipwell Head <laughs> after one read. So we kind of knew we had the magic dust. So Wofford comes in and he said, You know, I was talking to an optometrist, a podiatrist, or some kind of guy. And he says, You know, if the criminal has a right to a lawyer, why doesn't a working person have a right to see a doctor? And bingo, like, you, you, there it was. Yeah. And, and it was just one of these magical things where. If you look at the chart of the polling data, it, it's almost in a in a perfect upward line. Yeah, well that that ad. Then then when that hit ad, like a cannonball. Right, right. Yeah. You know. You know. So Harris's ad says, you know, if a criminal has a right to a lawyer, why doesn't a working person have a right to the doctor? Right. It, it, it reminded me of another thing when Baton Rouge it was like the dope dealers. If they ran this spot, says, let me ask you something. If a thirteen year old can find a drug dealer, why can't the police? Of course, the answer is the thirteen-year-old is the, the drug dealer is looking for the thirteen-year-old, right, right. and not the police. But it's one of those things people hear. It, they go, "Oh yeah, I like that guy." <laughs> yeah. So, how much of uh, uh, I mean, you know, you you're a you're a certifiably brilliant guy, and uh, everyone in politics recognizes that you know you have a genius for this. Um, was that sort of at the core, looking for those sort of clarifying? Those yeah. clarifying moments, yeah. those yeah. clarifying phrases that just sort of crystallize for someone who's watching. Yeah, that makes that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and, and generally, it's by listening to other people that you hear it. Yeah, and it, I always thought, by the way, you know, polling. It, we make so much of polling. I've learned so much more from focus groups, qualitative research where people are speaking in their own words because they always find a way of saying it better than you would say it without listening to them, you know? So this is literally one of my favorite stories in politics. So Blautenberg uh, was running and said, Republicans got Pete Dawkins. Yes. And Pete Dawkins was— This was, was his first race, first Blautenberg, race. right? He so he's a wealthy Heisman, businessman. Heisman Trophy winner. Against a Heisman Trophy winner, yeah. Right. And, and who was, was a military West guy. Point Supposedly the youngest general in the history of the army. He wasn't Custer was a general. He was 23, but that's okay. That was part of his thing. Yeah. 
And so, and he was just really good looking, just in, just I right remember, on Jack yeah. Armstrong guy. Yeah. And so he was announcing, and Bob Squire was doing media, remember, consultant, media yeah. consultant. So I said, Bob and Carter ask you. Yeah. So I said, uh, Carter, because Carter was actually the lead yeah. guy. And I said, let's get somebody to tape his announcement. It's great. And so I said, we're doing focus groups, and uh, Anna Bennett yeah. and Paul Mazin are doing a poll. So there was just one thing that this guy like picked out, and he says, you know, my wife and I have moved 20, lived in 21 different places in 20 years, but we've never found a place that we like more than our beautiful garden, garden state. It struck me as sort of usual kind of political background noise bullshit. I'll tell you what, the people in South Chicago are the finest right. people ever. You know, that, that kind of crap. So I get this call after focus group, and Anna says, man, they really react bad to that. I said, really? So, so I started going to the focus groups. And they would play that tape, and people would go, he's full of shit. I wouldn't live here. You know, if I had that kind of money, I'd be living in Palm Springs. I'd be living, you know, somewhere else. What's he talking about? And people down here are like, rude to you. You can't get up. And I'm going, so all I was doing was just waiting for when they would show that because you just knew they would come out to chat. So Carl and I put an ad together of Pete Dawkins on why he moved to New Jersey. And it was just him. And at the end, it was, come on, Pete, be real. And that was that. And so, of course, the ad runs during either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, one of the Jewish holidays. So Frank is like, so we run that ad on TV. I mean, getting 1,100 points. So he calls me in front of me. God damn it, Macy's didn't put gimbals on the goddamn air. What are you people doing? And people here to, you know, synagogue and telling this is crazy. I'm giving you money and you run this asshole on TV. So I said, yes, sir, we'll get it down right away. Still, I said, it was over the weekend. We couldn't, I, I, we right, didn't, right, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then, so Mousen goes <laughs> in post, and the guy's dead. I mean, that's it. it, it there's no campaign left. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we ran ahead of everybody. And it was just, all it was, was, you know, I wish I said that when I saw that, I knew people would react like they did. But boy, I didn't. But man, and that was just an accidental intern or whatever head back then pulling tape out that's, that he thought would be that's why what you said is so important you know we all think we're so smart the most important thing you can do is listen Ooh, and man. understand what you're hearing uh in campaigns so this this brought you to the you you guys were the hot ticket you and bagala right. were like crosby and hope right uh and uh you were uh recruited by all these presidential campaigns and uh you got a call from uh the governor of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. What what attracted you to Bill Clinton? Shit. And you talk to everybody else, and then you talk to him. It's like, really? You know, what attracted you to Babe Ruth? Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you right. can like, you know, what? Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it was just Michael Jordan. Right. I mean, there was Michael Jordan, and then there was, yeah. not that these aren't great guys or anything. No, but no, just but he, evident, he, was, a, he yeah. was a Hall of Fame uh, athlete, oh, oh, not yeah, just yeah, a good right. one. Yeah, he wasn't, yeah, he was like, yeah. And how'd you, how quickly did you figure that out? Was there a moment that uh, you said, damn, oh, this guy I, really I you, has the Coming down the stretch in New Hampshire, that one event in Kane, New Hampshire, to this day, I, I 
This was when he was under fire. He had been hit uh, by uh, Jennifer Flower's story that he had evaded the draft, the charge that he evaded the draft. And and he was pretty much being written off by all the really smart people in politics. Correct. Correct. Uh, Our poll numbers were appropriately. And that was that where he said, I'll I'll fight for you till the last dog dog dies. Yes. And I mean, I just never seen anybody with a back to the wall perform with that level of skill. And he kept saying, they are doing everything that they can to make this about me, and I'm doing everything I can to make it about you. And God almighty, you know, I watch to this day, I watch a politician, and I sit in, in the thing that anybody at home can do this, watch how much time they spend talking about themselves and how much time they spend talking about voters. If the ratio is anything less than four to one voters to themselves, and the only thing that matters about their story is how it fits in to right. the larger narrative. Right. And Clinton, I mean, it was the easiest thing to know in politics that no one ever learns. And he taught me that, you know, you want to make it about me. I don't want to do that. I want to make it about the voters. And that's always what, and it's a way to, it's a little, it's press bashing, but it's press bashing with skill. Right. Right. And, right. it, and, it, and it's very effective. Well, the thing that made him unique was that he had the, uh, he had the uh, I don't want to say affect because it was real, but of a guy who grew up in Arkansas, Hope, Arkansas. And, and, uh, but the intellect of a, a guy who had to stand between his stepdad beating his mom. Right. Yeah. I mean, a guy that knows pain. But he also was a big league intellect Ooh. and uh, Rhodes Scholar and uh, could handle the material. Oh, so oh. let me ask you about this, though. Um, you often were, you were the guy who went out and defended him uh, right. and uh, effectively. Right. Um, and a lot of it was oftentimes about his his personal life and his indiscretions right. Right. and right. so on. There was the Paula Jones story. I think right. that was when you said you'd drag $100. I, I was uh, actually talking about Jennifer Flowers. I and, see. And, and to, to her the, credit— The phrase was you drag $100 to the trailer. Sort of trailer park, no matter what you come up right. with. Right. Jennifer Flowers was actually paid $250,000 uh-huh. by the Enquirer. Uh-huh. All right? I, it was—and Linda Greenhouse, to her credit, wrote the story and said I was alluding to Paula Jones. And I said, Linda, I'm— I'm telling you, you go look at the transcript again. It was at like the Sperling breakfast. Yeah. And she called me back and took her. She said, James, I'm horrified. You're right. Do you want me to do a correction? And but, I said, but, you know, just let it go. It ain't you know, but you know where I'm going. You look at it through the prism of today. Right. And could he have, as skilled and as, uh, and as brilliant as he was, could he have... Uh, could he have thrived in this environment? Would people have accepted the behavior that he engaged in? Uh, and should they have? Well, I can only speak for myself, okay? And this is kind of an old Louisiana, kind of probably a French thing. It's just sex, all right? I mean, it's, if he was stealing, and it's lying about sex. I tell people, they'd have me against the wall with the blindfold and a cigarette, and I'd say, I swear I never touched her. I mean, it did not, to my mind, it doesn't even rise to the level of, of Mr. Me. Now, mores and things have changed. I'm just my sort of framework in 1998. And, you know, yeah, look, I think that Al Franken got the most bum deal of anybody I've ever seen. I really do. I, I, 
but that's the world that we live in. Uh, uh, and it, you know, you got to be very cognizant. I, I know that, like, I do not. There's no way in my teaching I'm going to be by, by myself with any female student. I mean, the door is going to be open. It's going to be somebody. And not that I think that there's anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people in America, David, they touch each other. You go and you meet people, and people, you know, I mean, there's 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 a lot of that kind of stuff, and it's you know, it's particularly true among African American people. I've seen hugging people, and and it's just. It's just the way that well, yeah, people that's... do around the country, and I think somebody different. I don't think Joe Biden has a erotic thought no, in no, his mind. No, no. All right, I, I I agree with you on this. In fact, I have a picture of him. He came and visited uh, my uh, my daughter in law and my 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 granddaughter my, on the first day that she was born. He happened to be uh, he happened to be in town, and I have a picture of him, and he's got his forehead pressed against my daughter-in-law's forehead and it was a it was it was in no way anything I, other than him being yeah. warm but the Clinton thing is different right uh, well, he had an erotic thought yes well not just an erotic yeah. thought but he acted on yeah, it yeah he did he did uh and sometimes with people who work for him and right. sometimes with young young people right um I, I, at the time i was and still not particularly that is but consensual. I, I, you know, it was what it was. Look, I wish he wouldn't have done it. I said during the whole thing, he's a good man, did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But, but what, can, what else can I do? I mean, he, yeah. But the thing was not stealing. It wasn't like hateful or anything like that. In, in my Cajun mind, it was sex. You were on the point, uh, as you always were for him uh, during that uh, impeachment period, uh, what do you think now when you see like a Lindsey Graham, for example, uh, who, uh, you know, who was who who led the prosecution in the impeachment in, in 98, uh, now basically dismissing the substance of the Mueller report and saying, well, there's nothing here to see. Let's move on. You know, I, I was just here and I saw an old, old friend of mine. They, Mark oh, Sanford. Mark Sanford. Yes. And, Repu- former well, Republican there's, governor there's of There's nothing that focuses South the attention Carolina. like uh, hanging every fortnightly. When Mark Sanford lost that primary because he attacked Trump, Lindsey Graham correctly. Yeah, yeah, said, I'm Carolina, on my way out if I don't make a course adjustment right, here. Right. And South Carolina's talking about not even having a Republican primary because it'd be a waste of money. But once Mark Sanford caught was hanging, that yeah. changed everything. And and they Sanford were, was a he was in Congress and he lost his seat because of he was critical because he was anti-Trump. Was anti-Trump. And, and he was very and conservative. Then they, and guy. then the person who beat him lost the seat to, to, Joe to a Democrat, to a great yeah. guy. Yeah. But I I I hear more terrific things about. It. He's so much part of these. I haven't met him. We we swap calls. But people say, Connor Lamb, that guy's going to be president one day. From Pennsylvania. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he is on another level. By the way, scale. Pennsylvania, let, let's let's skip ahead to where we are now. You're the guy among the many uh, phrases, like you could fill Guinness with your <laughs> quotes, but uh, your, your characterization of Pennsylvania as being Alabama wedged between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Uh, talk, explain Pennsylvania, because it's going to be big. Uh, again, you know, Trump cannot, in my view, you may have a different view, right, no, unless he repeats I, what I, he I, did. I don't think there's a state in the country he's going to win that he didn't win before. So are we, as we used to call it, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is. And, and, of course, like everywhere else, I mean, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, like Pittsburgh booming. 
so it's sort of, I mean, it's booming, but the rest of the state, not so much so. You're absolutely correct, and I got in the middle of Connor's race, which is a district that, that Trump carried about 20 points, and I knew Connor Lamb's grandfather, who was Governor Casey's legislative director. And if you you notice, as well as anybody, the governor's legislative director is really good at politics. Yes. He really knows the state. Or the governor's really bad at being really governor. Bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so <clears throat> that was encouraging. One of the projects that I'm working on is we are targeting 40 counties in four states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Florida. And it is my belief, when I looked at the returns, particularly in Florida, but I looked at Pennsylvania, we got slaughtered. I mean, like 85-15. I mean, just, I mean, disgustingly slaughtered. And if we could cut that from 85-15 to 75-25, as you guys did in 8 and 12, we would run the table. Little things produce these big margins. And, you know, we're told that we have this urban... Yeah, you, you know the counter argument. If we just run up the numbers in the in Philly and you know, and, it what makes me uncomfortable as a Democrat. Rural whites are people. I'm one. All right, they, if I the reason that most people become Democrats is we don't know hate anybody. I mean that that generally is the emotional reaction we have when we choose that. Why, it, it, you know, if I if I said that all. African-Americans are the same. All Jews are the same. All Irish people are the same. All Asian people are the same. People said, well, James, you can't say that. That, that this individual, and, and I would appropriately be chastised right, for that. Right, Yet it is okay to say all rural white people are the same. Right. They're not. Right. Some have college degrees. Some don't. Some are married. Some are not. Some go to church. Some don't. Some have right. guns. Some don't have guns. Some right, and it, and and most importantly, some may some may have racial views. Some may be racist. Or, or they are. Yeah, I, but, I don't deny that. But yeah, not, but some but, but some, some don't. And if our if, if what they perceive is they're not part of the hip, urban, educated, diverse, ascended right. coalition, well, I mean, I saw Paul Krugman saying, you know, they don't understand our policies are actually better for them. I think Paul is right, but he doesn't understand the 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 nature, the human nature of I'm left out and I'm not part of your frat. I told my daughter, she goes to LSU and she's in one of these, you know, high-end sororities. <laughs> and they're all 5'8 and weigh 128 pounds and drive BMWs. I said, everybody hates y'all. Don't you understand that? <laughs> you know, so when you walk around that campus, other people are like, you know, like, how the hell with that? You know, rich girls are just, you know, sitting there with all the, you know, watches and stuff, and, it, and, it, and that's the aura we, the Democratic Party gives off the same aura that the KDs at LSU do. We're, we're cooler than everybody else. Yeah. And that's a terrible, that's terrible why, thing that, in that, That's why, whatever her intention was, that's why when Hillary used the word deplorables, it was a... Uh, I'll tell you the worst part of that, yeah. okay? She had done it like eight times before, and, and nobody, nobody, nobody went and said, Madam Secretary... Yeah, we, we could probably reframe this. Yeah, all right, and, and that's the tragedy of the and, and, and what the other tragedy of the thing is. In a lot of us, of Clinton ties it, she was actually much more of a populist than he was. Her instincts were that was not her instincts, and she grew up in small town, right, in in, in Pennsylvania, yeah, part, yeah. and I. I 
I don't know. She never liked NAFTA at all. Mm-hmm. She was argued against it. She all she she was very skeptical of corporate power. I mean, serious. And somehow or another, he became the people's guy, and she became the you know part of the new coalition. And I think she got talked into that. I, I think he he was just a hell of a lot better at politics. He and was. She was but good. She her, was great at government. Yeah, right. but, but her instincts were more. That, yeah. That was no, not, I understand. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I I agree. So look at the field. Who among this group uh, can reach those voters? You know, I hate to say it, but to be determined. And somebody, you know, political skills, people can grow. And people can kind of frame frame issues. I, you know, I, I, I don't see anybody, uh, Mayor Pete, I, I interviewed him. You know, right now, you know, based on what I know now, I may even vote for him myself. But I, there's a lot more that we're going to learn about these candidates. There's a lot more we're going to learn about their ability to, to develop a, a narrative and to see where their political skills are, how they handle attacks, how they, did it, where do they see coalitions, how they're going to You and I them. both know this because we've been through this. These campaigns are long auditions. They are tests. People want to jump right to the end. You know, I learned, you, you talked about what you saw of Bill Clinton in New Hampshire. I learned all about Barack Obama during that campaign. I, I, I admired him. I thought I was with the right guy, but I didn't know how he was going to handle all the pressures that would come, and we didn't know what the You're test would be. And that's part of auditioning for president of the United States. Precisely. The other thing is that we know and other people know, the primaries are just hard. They're exhausting. They, they're, they're unending. You don't even know where you are. You don't, well, Once you get to the general, you got right. airplanes and staffs. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, it, 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 the generals are not that particularly— right. Difficult, uh, but the, the the primaries have really, really, and we're going to see a lot of fumble, stumbling, regrouping here, and I, I, hopefully, we're going to see some unappreciated, like political skills. As we speak, Joe Biden has just announced his candidacy. Uh, you know him well. I know him well. How do you assess him? He's a front runner in right. the polls. You, you know. I said, I said, New York Times. I know, I understand that they're mad at me, and they're dear friends of mine, Mike, Steve, Bruschetti. Mm-hmm. Even, even I, I know Vice President Biden well, not as well as I know these guys. And I, and I believe this: the only organization that has and is being run by eighty-year-olds is the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> I, I don't know what the country needs for sure, but an eighty-year-old president is not one of them. I mean, I'm seventy-four. I'll be seventy-five this year, and I just can't. You know, when I used to do. West Coast speech, I used to say, I like to get out the day before. Now I like to get out the day before the day before. I, I mean, you just cannot, you can't do what that job yeah. requires. Yeah. And I don't care how experienced you are. I don't care how many good people you have around you. That is not a job for 80-year-olds. And I'm sorry, I, that's just something I, I, I really believe. I can't let you go without asking you about Mary. Uh, you know, you you guys are like a, a sitcom script. Uh, you were uh, you were uh, the chief strategist for Bill Clinton. She was the political director for the NR- NRC uh, when uh, in 1992 when President Bush was running for election. Like, how does that work? And now, 25 years later, how 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 did you guys manage all of that? 
She was, you know, Mary grew up not very far from you. Mary like, Madeline. Mary Madeline grew up 125th yes, in commercial, Italian, south side of Chicago. Right, right. Burnham, yeah. so she's up yeah. really up. By the steel mills. You know, we've been married uh, 20, got uh, 93, so we'll be 26th yeah. anniversary coming up. And, you know, I think we're not a, a novelty anymore, and we're just a kind of old married people like this weekend. We <laughs> sat there and kind of watched, binge watch documentaries. Uh she snapped at me when I asked if she'd read Pe- if I'd read Peggy Noonan's column in the Wall Street Journal Saturday, so I knew not to go there. Um, I, you know, we got two kids. Uh, we in love, and I've had a, been fortunate. You know, I got married at forty nine, and I've been married once, which is I'm a statistical freak. I don't know. I'm, so I, it works for me. And then somebody called me about George Conway and Kellyanne, and I said, "Good, pass the baton to them. They can have it." <laughs> but it was a, it was just one of those things. And you know, we got married, and you know, it was, it was a stunt. It was a, like a Washington hedge fund. It was everything else. And you know, now I, I think we're like an old pair of shoes. People, are, oh, that's James and Mary. How y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man, you are. You are a living legend in politics, right. but the thing about you and everyone who's worked with you and everyone who knows you knows this, you're, you're as good a person as you are smart. Well, David, I... And I, I, and I appreciate you. I can't, I, can't, I, I can't live in it, and I know people know this because it's in the show, but I know anybody in politics that I've met and over the years. You and I have always had a, a, a very good relationship, and it could have gone frayed during the 2008 primaries. It could have gone frayed at, at, at any point. People in politics all have, you know, big egos, and everybody wants to think they're better than that. And I think that one of the things our value is that I think we've always enjoyed our relationship. We've always had, like, mutual respect for each other. And, you know, we played tough, but at the end of the day, we knew what we were doing. And I do I appreciate your friendship, and I'm just really happy to be part of what you're doing here at the University of Chicago. Thanks, Thank James. you. Good to be with you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.